Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that notification button, ring that notification bell, and you will get uh, access to all of the content I post each and every week. And please be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel as I continue to grow this thing. Um, very special guest this week, uh, somber subject matter. I want to introduce Julie Farnham. She is the former assistant and acting director of intelligence for the Capitol Police Department in Washington, D.C. Her new book, Domestic Darkness, offers an insider's account of the warning signs, domestic tragedy, and aftermath of the January 6, 2021 insurrection. Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, my first question is, uh, I want to take you back to that infamous day in American history. Um, but I want you to take off the hat of your official role that day. And just what were your general thoughts as an American citizen on what was you witnessed happening at the Capitol uh, on that day? Yeah, I mean, I knew it was awful and it was so sad to see, like, and to see what we had become as a country. Um, like, we knew that, you know, there was a lot of division in the United States and, um, but to see just like Americans like destroying the Capitol was just so sad. And like, because I was there, I didn't really understand how other people outside of like my little bubble that I was in, because I was on the Capitol complex. I didn't, I wasn't sure how other people had perceived it and if they thought it was as bad as I thought it was. And so I called my mom the next day. I was like, mom, what did people think about what happened? And she's like, Julie, it's bad. She's like, it's the only thing on television. And then I had a friend in Japan send me a message like, are you, are you okay? What's, what's going on there? And uh, I was like, oh, this made the news in Japan. I said, I guess, I guess it is a big deal. Um, and so that kind of put it into perspective. And it wasn't just me who thought that this was a horrible day. Uh, one of the, the main uh, points in your book uh, that's been written about quite extensively uh, and you've testified to various uh, investigative bodies over the last couple of years. Um, and that's the warning signs uh, in your role that you wrote about and, and tried to give the alert about to, to various individuals and entities um, about the potential danger specifically to Congress that day. Um, however, as you write, and as it's well known, those warnings were either ignored or not taken seriously. Uh, my question is, why do you think that happened? Uh, do you think that maybe there were folks who somewhat agreed with some of the objectives of those folks who were storming the Capitol? Was it uh, negligence, just incompetence, willful ignorance? Why do you think uh, those warnings were ignored? Because you clearly rang that alarm bell. Yeah, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I think the Capitol Police had like a sense of complacency and maybe even arrogance because they deal with demonstrations and protests literally every single day at the Capitol. There's always something going on. And they've dealt with, you know, big ones as well, big protests. And so I think they thought like, well, we've got this. We don't need help. We know we know how to handle these protests. Um, I also think that me being new and me being a woman, like they didn't necessarily have that trust in me yet uh, because I had only been on the job 72 days when January 6th happened. Um, and I do think that uh, Stephen Sund, who was the chief of the police then, 
he did have some sympathies um, since he has left, since he was um, asked to resign on January 7th. He's come out in like far right media and has been very, very supportive of the far right. Um, so I didn't know it then, but I do think now that perhaps his personal failings may have impeded his professional responsibilities. Um, quick follow up, because you you write about the the way protests from one group, such as like Antifa, maybe left leaning groups uh, were taking the, the seriousness that those protests were taking versus this particular group where there seems to be a different in the overall response uh, of those protests. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. And, you know, unfortunately, I think some of it had to do with race. Um, if they were, you know, black and brown skinned individuals coming to the Capitol, I think the response would have been different. And that's very unfortunate. I think people did not see a group of white people um, as the threat that they were. And that's unfortunate because, you know, it, they didn't, this did not happen overnight. It wasn't like one day a bunch of people decided let's go storm the Capitol. Like, no, there was, there were years preceding this, you know, if you look at Charlottesville, for example, and I talk about that in the book, which happened a few years before January 6th, that, you know, should have been an alarm, alarm bell and a wake up call for us, because that was demonstrating that there were fractions of our society that, that were very hateful and that wanted to commit violent acts. And then, of course, that all came to a head on January 6th. But I think one of the things that happened ahead of January 6th is that we had people in positions of leadership in our country who took these fringe elements of our society. And society, every society always has fringe elements. But um, those fringe elements were taken and embraced and brought into the mainstream, and they were seen as like a legitimate voting block, and they were uh, recruited to come vote for, you know, different people. And that, I think, gave them a voice that empowered them, that gave them a platform to spread their hate, and that was really detrimental to our democracy and to our country. Um, going back to the department that you were over at the time, uh, you mentioned it was only a mere 72 days when January 6th happened, uh, you know, after you arrived. Um, but you give a detailed account of the dysfunction and personnel challenges uh, of the in Intelligence Interagency Coordination Division, IICD, um, that you inherited uh, when you came in as assistant director. Um, how did this dysfunction contribute to the lack of credibility of that department? And why was it so important for you to address those challenges head on like you tried to and you did? Yeah, I think that's a good question. So when I came on board, I had 11 analysts under me, uh, intelligence analysts, and I was told from the get-go uh, that my team was going to need a complete overhaul. The team was very siloed. They didn't communicate um, well within the department, and they didn't communicate almost at all with anyone outside the department, not other law enforcement agencies, not members of the intelligence community. The analyst had no formal training. Some of them had been there 10, 15, maybe even longer years with the department. But without that training, they really weren't doing um, much intelligence work. And um, they were known for producing things and intelligence assessments that were just not of very good quality, um, that really missed the mark. And I give an example of how they had done an intelligence assessment for the election, which was written before I came on board. And they really focused on this one left-leaning group in DC, 
when, you know, all signs are pointing to Trump losing the election, which would not have um, would not have instigated a left leaning group. And so I was like, well, why are you concentrating on this when that's not really the threat? And so that sort of like missing the mark and doing it consistently contributed to like the bad reputation. So I had my work cut out for me. And, you know, to terminate someone in the federal government is very, very difficult and it takes a very long time. There's very specific procedures and processes you need to you need to do, which I did do. Um, it took about a year, but ultimately I ended up um, moving out about six, six people, either terminating them or pushing them out of those 11. But then I ended up when I left, I think we had over 50 people on the team. And like, I hired like great people with great experience and knew what they were doing. And that needed to be done. That needed to be done. It's unfortunate that it was such a turbulent time and um, things had to play out the way they did. But in order to support the mission of the Capitol, the Capitol Police and to protect our all members of Congress, regardless of what their what their political leanings are, like it needed to be done. Um, you've been questioned, uh, interviewed, um, you know, investigated by um, multiple, multiple agencies, uh, both, you know, Government Accountability Office, January 6th Select Committee, United States Senate, FBI, on and on and on. There have been several, several agencies who have investigated this, and they've all released reports. Um, mm -hmm. Of all the reports and findings that have been generated and published uh, to the, you know, the, the, the mass, um, which ones do you think most accurately captures your actions leading up to and immediately after January 6th? Yeah, probably the select committee, the January 6th select committee. Um, they did a really thorough job um, in reading that. I do. I have it right above me. I, I, I read it a couple of days ago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and so they did a really extensive investigation Appendix one is the section that deals with intelligence and with the Capitol Police, and that talks about me. Um, I think they they saw, you know, the full breadth of what I was doing there and what happened at the Capitol Police. They saw the intelligence and the documents supporting what I was saying. Um, so I do think that they probably got it most accurate. All the other ones from, you know, whether it be the Senate, the GAO, the OIG, like there were parts that they got right and didn't get right. And some of it just had to do with um, like the Senate report was the first report that came out after January 6th. Uh, I think it was a little bit rushed um, and there were some things that they clearly got wrong. There are other things that they got right. Things that they got wrong, for example, they talk about my team. They never interviewed me. Um, so that was unfortunate. So I think the most of their source was Steve Sund, the former chief of police, and he had a vested interest in not being completely transparent um, to cover up his own failures. Um, but he said things like, oh, we had 30 people on the team. And like, no, we only had 11 people on the team. So some, something like that's very objective and very easy to verify the fact that, that got they got that wrong, you know, calls into question some of the other conclusions they made. Um, but they did get things right about, you know, how the officers didn't have the equipment and there wasn't a significant operational plan ahead of, ahead of that. Those were concerns. Um, so all of them, uh, you know, had pros and cons, but I think the most accurate representation of what happened is probably the official January 6th Select Committee report. Um, you write extensively about the threat of right-wing extremism uh, and the effect it's having on uh, the erosion of democracy. 
uh, mm -hmm. and also the de democratic principles that we all share. Um, yet you're very candid. You write about uh, your romantic relationship with someone who was deeply involved in that world. Um, from a personal perspective, how were you affected by that, meaning that you come to find out later on about that situation? Uh, and what lessons did you take away from that experience? Um, yeah, it was in um, just to give background to your to your listeners, you know, I had a relationship with Lieutenant Shane Lamont, who was the head of Intel for the DC Police Department. And he later um, was charged and indicted for um, assisting the leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tario. At the time, I knew he was talking to Enrique Tario, but I also knew Enrique Tario was an informant for many police departments. So it wasn't alarming or concerning for me to hear that he was having conversations and meetings with him. That wasn't unusual. Um, and I never uh, suspected that there was anything inappropriate or unlawful on Shane's part when, when I was dating him. It wasn't until later when he was arrested that I realized, and I read the indictment, that I realized that he might have been providing information to Tario that was inappropriate. And then it made me think, like, well, did he use me or did he not use me? And, like, that's really hurtful to think about because you think, like, well, was I being used and why didn't I pick up on it? And, like, was I being manipulated and how did I not notice? And all of those things, like, you know, can make my brain crazy. One because I I don't know I don't know the answers to that. Um, I I don't know the answers. I suspect the FBI knows the answers because they saw all of his text messages, including his text messages between him and Tario. And so I don't know if I was ever mentioned in there or if there was discussion about information that he was getting from me. I don't know. I don't have that visibility. Um, but you know, it's, it's hurtful. And like, everyone's been in a bad relationship or felt used um, by an ex, you know, romantic partner. But not everyone has it play out in like a very public way. And so that adds like another layer of like, disappointment in myself and just hurtfulness. Hmm. Um, one of the things I really uh, found very interesting about your book is that you list 10 recommendations to help, uh, and I'll quote, address the blight caused by extremism and conspiracy theories in the United States, end quote. Um, Congress plays a role in at least half of your recommendations. Uh, given our current state of political leadership in Congress, um, do you have confidence that any meaningful actions will be taken by that body uh, to address the, the issues that you raise, um, you know, that are necessary to be addressed? No, I really don't have any confidence, to be honest with you. Congress is not a functioning body right now. They are so divided. They can't, I mean, they can't even pass a budget. We are, you know, almost six months into the fiscal year in the government. And I worked for the government for almost 20 years. And to be on a continuing resolution for six months into the fiscal year, like that is that is the height of dysfunction. Like if they cannot pass a budget, they are not doing their jobs and budget like above all else, like that keeps the government running. And if they can't do like that basic, that's their basic duties. If they can't do that, then like, I don't have a whole lot of faith that they're going to really tackle like really difficult issues like domestic terrorism. They don't have, like we keep electing people who are either very far right or very far left and we're electing people who are not willing to come together and find common grounds and find solutions. It's like 
this is my position. I'm going to stake my claim and I am not budging from that. And that is so not conducive to being a productive body and to be a, being a functional Congress. And that's so unfortunate. And that's what really erodes us as a country and erodes our democracy because we lack leadership. We lack integrity amongst many, many members of Congress on both sides of the aisle. And that's really, really unfortunate because I think we're going to have to go through more darkness before we get to something more positive. But unless members of Congress like grow up, to be quite frank, if they, until they grow up, like we're we're not in a good situation. Uh, if I can just take a quick aside, because you actually had a role, a key role uh, in immigration. Uh, yes. You, yes, you, you did that for a number of years. Uh, I'm curious your view of the possibility that there may, might, possibly, could be a deal on immigration uh, that's being talked about. Um, from your perspective, in the years and years and years that you worked, and maybe I, and you can give my listeners uh, your title and, and what you were doing in immigration, um, how necessary is something uh, that needs to be done about immigration? And from your perspective, you know what what needs to be done? Yeah, so I worked at the Department of Homeland Security for a little over 15 years, all of that time in immigration, most of it at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which handles the immigration benefit side of things. But I did do a couple of years at Immigration Customs Enforcement, which is ICE, which is the enforcement side of things. So I've seen both sides of the debate. Um, so with immigration, I think, you know, to make real changes, you're going to have to look at it long term. And you're going to have to have, you don't want to do something like President Reagan did um, in the 1980s. He passed a law called IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, which is um, sometimes referred to as amnesty, where he just took these large swaths of um, unlawful individuals who are here in the United States and provided a path to legalization. That was fine then, but here we are today and we have, you know, a large group of unlawful immigrants here again. So you need something that's going to address that issue long term. And actually, I was on um, I helped with developing a policy, an immigration policy for Pete Buttigieg when he was running for president. And so we had a list of like five or seven things that would give people um, a path to legalization for the long term. Um, so like if you had been in the United States and paid taxes for 10 years, for example, like and there were other situations. So I think we need to. Congress really needs to think about like, what are they going to do to address it long-term? And then as far as the border goes, I think the biggest issue is asylum and um, people who need protection should get protection, but the way our asylum system is set up, it is, it's overworked. Um, they have something. And when someone comes to the border, something called credible fear, or reasonable fear screening, which is not an adjudication of their asylum claim. It's just to screen them to see like, well, do you have enough to apply for asylum or not? And so that's an extra like bureaucratic step because most of those um, determinations are that they can apply for asylum. So you're making them jump through this first step and that delays things further. So just like let them apply for asylum, but then have a plan in place for processing, processing them quickly. And as it stands now, people can apply for asylum one year after they get here, but I would like to see that shortened. Um, but then you need to work because unlike criminal cases in immigration cases, you're not entitled to an attorney. And so I'd like to see the government, you know, either offer more grants to get some of these um, organizations and 
to provide legal assistance to a lot of these immigrants, but at the same time, shortening the window when people can apply. Because when they have their credible fear, reasonable hearing, fair hearing, if they're found to have credible or reasonable fear, then they're released until their date for their asylum hearing. And that can sometimes be years in the future. And then that gives people the opportunity to kind of like disappear into the United States. And that's a safety concern. So people who deserve protection should get protection and, um, you know, but we should process them faster to minimize the risk of to national security. And then the other part of it is dealing with what's causing people to come to the United States to begin with. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, Central and South America and unrest there, addressing those issues so people don't feel like they have to leave. And, you know, that's something that needs to be considered as well. Sure, sure. Sorry, that was uh, a long answer. No, <laughs> it's, a, it's a complicated problem. And yeah. um, that's why, and I, I wanted to take advantage of her expertise because I know there's, you know, the, the conversation doesn't seem to really be focused on solutions. It's more political solutions. And, um, you know, we need these kind of conversations writ large so that, you know, we can have, uh, as you mentioned, Congress and people like that coming together to solve some of these gargantuan problems because, it's just going to keep getting worse if, if nobody steps up and, and addresses it. Yeah. And I mean, and Congress loves to blame the president, whoever's in office for the border issues. You know, it's Congress's problem and Congress isn't addressing it. It's not Biden's problem. It's not Trump's problem. It's Congress's issue and they need to do something to fix it, not the president. Well said. Um, mm-hmm. Shifting back now, uh, we have the upcoming 2024 presidential elections. The primary season's in full swing. Um, in the context of the history of January 6th, uh, do you have any concerns about the upcoming election? Um, and maybe some of those fires haven't been put out all the way. Yeah, I do have concerns. Um, it looks like it is going to be a rematch between Biden and Trump. Um, I am concerned about what's going to happen, you know, the next January 6th. I think the Capitol Police will be prepared this time because that's the threat they know. So they're going to have, you know, the fence and National Guard and everything else there. I think the real concern is going to be violence against candidates and against elected officials. Um, I still worry about that. I think that is probably the biggest threat facing members of Congress right now and any elected official across the board from local, state, um, and elect and federal level. Um, and we worry about, you know, lone wolves. And if you look at my time at the Capitol Police, I dealt with tens of thousands of threats against members of Congress. That's like, that's what I did most of my time that I was there, was looking at threats. And I know, like I said, it happens at all levels of of government. And, you know, those lone wolves too, like you don't necessarily know what they're thinking, what they're planning, especially if they're not talking to other people. And some of them, if they are, particularly if they're either dealing with mental illness or if they are um, inspired by radical ideology, they can be, they can turn to violence and that can be very, very bad for our country. Um, you're no longer with the Capitol Police uh, and yet you've announced some, uh, I think your intentions to maybe run for public office um, with everything that you've just spoken about and, and your experience over the last few years. Uh, what's motivating you to seek office? Yeah, I am running for office in Arlington, Virginia. So just local office. Um, It's a couple things like, you know, on the like local level, I have two daughters and I want to make sure that my community thrives into the future. 
And I'm really motivated, motivated by that. And then on the bigger level, it's, you know, I saw how divided our country is and it, it worries me a lot. And I think we need people in elected office who will use common sense and will be practical and are willing to work with different groups to find solutions that benefit the community as a whole. And so, yeah, it's important to me. And rather than complaining about it on social media, uh, I thought I would uh, throw my hat into the ring and and step up. Well, good luck. And uh, we do need people with courage and conviction. Uh, there does seem to be a, a lack of that, you know, for the most part. Um, but I was just curious because given everything you've gone through, uh, that seems like it wouldn't be a path you would take. But I, I understand it now because uh, you feel like you can make a difference. And I think that's uh, something that a lot of elected officials, hopefully, or people running for office uh, will have to have that that feeling to, to to make change. Yeah. And I do want to. And, you know, I I left the Capitol Police because the book came out. But public service and like serving my country and my community has always been important to me. And I want to continue to do it, even if I can't necessarily do it as um, a civil servant. So that is important to me. But the threats are there, too. When I announced my candidacy here in Arlington, I got seven death threats that first week. Mm. So it is a very real concern. Um, and but that I won't be intimidated because I know what I'm doing is the right thing to do. Well, uh, Julie, I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Edric show. If people want more information about you or they want information about the book, uh, where can they go and how can they get a copy of the book? You can get a copy of the book wherever you buy books, whether it be your local store or some of the bigger stores. Um, and then you can find out more information about me at julieforarlington.com. Excellent. Julie Farnham, former assistant and acting director of intelligence with Capitol Police in Washington, D.C., Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your book. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on The Edric Show. Thank you. You're very welcome. This has been another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. As promised, this is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Ring that notification bell. You will get notified of the content I post each and every week. I want to thank you for tuning in, and I will catch you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.